millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag. A watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hey Alarmy, before we get started, we wanted to make sure you heard the big news. The Alarmist has joined Patreon. Patreon subscribers will get access to our content ad-free, as well as our aftermath post-interview discussion and final verdict. We'll also be putting out additional bonus episodes and other fun stuff. Here's a preview of Guest Alarmist, where I step aside and let a guest walk us through a personal tragedy, and together the Alarmist crew figures out who's to blame. This month, Adam Lustig discusses his 2003 telegram disaster. Sandy ran this telegram company, and another part of the business was uh, children's costumed characters for birthday parties, many of which I did. And uh, because, like Clayton said, Sandy didn't have the rights from Disney to, like, license the, to, like, advertise or promote the character as actual Mickey Mouse, as actual Minnie Mouse, she had to have alt names for all mm. of the children characters <laughs> that would clear <laughs> copyright. So it was Mr. Mouse. It was Ms. Mouse. Elmo was just the letter L dash Mo. SpongeBob, this is the best one, was SpongeRob. So oh. things like... <laughs> So and you work on for and this on. company, which and is on and on SpongeBob's I can't, name. I can't. Really, still Sponge Robert. Still just Sponge Robert. <laughs> but it's just a so, different yes. version. Did it exactly. look exactly like SpongeBob? That's right. Bob? Did yeah. Rob look? It was Rob a twin of Bob, <laughs> or exactly. was he slight? Was he fraternal? Yeah. Was it an identical twin? Was he a fraternal twin? No, it was identical Good. twin. I'm sure. It would right? seem that. <laughs> <laughs> seemed, seemed identical. Go to patreon.com slash the alarmist and subscribe today. Now on to our episode. Each week we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week you tell us if we got it right. 
My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert Dr. Francesca Fiorani. Francesca is a historian and professor of art history at the University of Virginia. She is also the author of The Shadow Drawing, How Science Taught Leonardo How to Paint. Let's hear what she has to say about the theft of the Mona Lisa. Hi, Francesca. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, it's a pleasure to be with you here. <laughs> so can you start off by giving us a little background on the actual work of art, the Mona Lisa? Who commissioned it? Why? Who was the Mona Lisa? Yes. I mean, the Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa means Lady Lisa, and she was the wife of a silk merchant in Florence. Uh, she was his second wife. Yeah, the first one, and uh, and then married Lisa. He uh, gave she gave him a girl, uh, and then a couple of years later a boy, and that was the important thing. And one of the thoughts is that it was to mark the birth of uh, uh, of the first son that uh, um, that um, uh, her husband um, Francesco del Giocondo asked Leonardo to paint a portrait of his wife. At that very same moment, uh, the family also moved from one house to a larger house in Florence. So the combination of those two events explain the, uh, the commissioning of this portrait. And recently, we also understood why this silk merchant was able to convince Leonardo who by then was a really famous artist, able to refuse commissions from some of the most distinguished patrons in Renaissance Italy. Why this silk merchant was able to convince Leonardo to paint the portrait of his wife. And that probably has to do with family connection. And um, the, the, the Del Giocondo and the family of Leonardo's uh, father were very closely connected, shared also some religious spaces, some roles in religious associations in Florence, particularly in the Church of the Santissima Annunziata. And so because of that package of family connections, Leonardo painted the work. And how long did it take? Yeah, how long did it take him well, to 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 p finish this piece, and 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 then how did it end up in the Louvre? Well, that's the thing. He kind of never finished it. And in terms of a Renaissance commission work of art, it was a total failure because it was never delivered. The poor guy, the poor silk merchant, never <laughs> the painting. The painting stayed with Leonardo throughout his life. Uh, or maybe maybe the silk merchant received another copy, but the painting we call today the Mona Lisa, the one who uh, which is in the Louvre, uh, that stayed with Leonardo until the very end of his life. At one point, uh, at the very end of his life, or right after his death, uh, it was acquired by the King of France, who was Francois Premier at the time, and it was part of the Royal French collection. 
and it stayed in those collections ever since. Then when the collection became public and they were open to everybody and they were displayed um, in the Louvre, that's that's how, how it became part of that museum. So straight from the French uh, royal collection to the public museum, which was open at the very end of the 18th century uh, um, as part of the uh, reform uh, brought about by the French Revolution. And from a technical standpoint, what makes this mm-hmm. painting so special? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's, um, it's a very interesting question. Uh, and... Uh, it, uh, to understand it, it requires a very close, prolonged looking at the painting. Mm. That is the kind of looking that is hardly, is basically impossible today. Uh, as you know, the painting is displayed in, in a case, highly protected, and uh, there is a fence, so you people cannot get close to it. And in fact, many, many, many visitors are completely underwhelmed by the experience of looking at this painting, precisely because they look at it very quickly and look at it from afar. Uh, but for if one has the opportunity to look it up close, that's when it becomes clear the kind of uh, technique that he used. Very slow technique, uh, based on very, very uh, small touches of colors uh, 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 with each touch of the the paint he was looking for a balance of light and shade and he was doing that in order to capture in the most minute uh, uh, way possible uh, her complexion her feelings the way she felt about it, that smile that is there and is not there, and therefore a way to communicate to us viewers the intention of her mind. So what what she thought, what she felt, how she felt in the world. And the the impression we get is precisely that complete ease that she has of her position in the world. The social position, and this we judge look at uh, her dress. She is wearing a, a very, very expensive, sophisticated clothing made out of silk. No surprise, right? That's, uh, that, that, was the, that was the trade of her husband. A very, uh, um, with some uh, gilded uh, embroidery. Uh, she's wearing on her head a veil, which is almost transparent for how thin it is. So oh, those are all indications of, of our social standing. And then standing in this amazing landscape, uh, and it has always been commented on how her standing, her social standing, is also a standing in, in the universe, in the cosmos, in, uh, in perfect harmony between between her body and the body of the earth, which is represented in the background. Wow. So before its theft, how popular was this painting of the Mona Lisa? 
Was it already one of the most recognizable works of art at this point? No, it wasn't. Uh, the the um, first of all, this stays all stayed always with him, right? So during his lifetime, some people, some artists saw it. There were copies that were made, sort of authorized copies made in his in Leonardo's workshop by his pupils and assistants. So. It, it was not unknown, right? Um, but then it stayed in private collections, so it was seen again from, by very special visitors to the French king. Um, so it was not easy accessible. Mm. Uh, the work, the most famous work that he did was The Last Supper. The Last Supper is the one that everybody talks about. Uh, it is uh, it was it is in a monastery, but paradoxically, in, in Milan, paradoxically, it was much, much more accessible. And uh, it was copied in all sorts of ways, in paint, in prints. Uh, and so The Last Supper was the most famous work by Leonardo. The Mona Lisa, again, was definitely known, right? Uh, but it became that icon of Western culture only uh, after the death, uh, only uh, and only uh, after also it had become a kind of um, a target for the avant-garde, uh, particularly the, um, the cubist avant-garde, uh, as a symbol of that illusionistic art which they were trying to destroy, and right? And um, paradox, it was interesting that um, uh, both uh, Picasso uh, and uh, the poet uh, Apollinaire were put under investigation at one point because it was thought that they had uh, stolen the painting as, uh, you know, sort of not one of those egregious um, acts to, um, acts to, um, to stress their point of how their, their new art was, you know, meant to destroy those icons of of, of, of Western culture, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, can you tell us a little bit about Vincenzo Perugia? Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> what? Who was he? What is his connection to the museum at that time? I mean, uh, I'll tell you uh, what I know, and I'll tell you, what I, I think is the most accurate way to describe him uh, because it's kind of become a legend and there are also sorts of stories around him uh, uh, some hard to um, confirm. So he certainly is somebody who worked at the Louvre uh, in various capacities, more like a handyman. You know, those big museums who need a lot of people to take care of the paintings, not only the art historians and curators to study them, uh, but then restorers, then all sorts of people who take care of the spaces, the rooms, the glass to protect them, the, the frames. And, so. and he was one of those people who who supported the, uh, the display of collections in the Louvre. It is unclear to me if he was still working at the Louvre when he committed um, the theft or not. Either way, he was familiar with the Louvre, 
the official rooms and also what we may call the working room, the behind the scenes the rooms and places and staircases and stairwells uh, that uh, um, uh, the support staff uses all the time to take care of the collection and the places that visitors may not know anything about. And of course, that knowledge was instrumental to the theft. Why did he do it? Uh, um, his, his official version is that he wanted to bring it back to Italy because he was convinced that it had been stolen from Italy uh, by Napoleon at the end of the 18th century. Now, many, many things were taken by Napoleon at the end of the 18th century and brought from Rome, Milan, uh, Venice, and other places to Paris. Uh, but the uh, great majority of them then was returned in 1814 uh, during the Congress, one of the outcome of the Congress of uh, Vienna, which uh, sort of re or, uh, brought Europe to the organization and the political organization previous, uh, before the French Revolution. So among those there was also the return of a lot of objects to, from France to, to Italy, not all of them. In fact, some manuscripts by Leonardo who were taken, which were taken by Napoleon, never came back. They are still in Paris. Um, but that is not the story of the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa was in Paris long before because it had been acquired by uh, the French king uh, sometime in the early part of the 16th century. So he had, he had the story wrong. Uh, but yet, uh, he thought that he was doing something good for Italy, bringing back to Italy this uh, famous painting. Um, that's the story, right? Um, he did try to make some money out of it. So uh, this the sort of, let's call it patriotic uh, um, feeling, uh, um, uh, was accompanied by um, the need to, or the wish to increase and uh, ameliorate its financial situation. There is no question about that. Uh, but there is also something completely, let's, let's say, naive in this story. How can you imagine, first of all, to sell such a painting, right? It's a unique thing. How, how, how do you think it can go Forget the market. I mean, it's a, it's a little uh, hard to imagine how you can steal such a work and then resell it. Um, and also, uh, the project of giving back to Italy is, um, again, I call, I call it naive. Uh, it's hard to imagine how that could have happened. In fact, it did not happen. That's part of the story. The other story is that perhaps he did not act by himself. Mm. Uh, and that's where we get in the most uh, speculative part, um, more uh, the kind of uh, story that serves a novel <laughs> than an historical reconstruction, I would say. Yeah. So... Can you walk us through 
how he actually stole the Mona Lisa and also give us an idea of what the security at the museum was like at the time. Yes. So uh, the security in the museum at the time was something, you know, it's hard for us perhaps to imagine knowing how carefully uh, museums are guarded today. Uh, and also the technology was completely different. So we're talking mainly about, uh, about uh, people who guard uh, entrance and rooms. Uh, we uh, also um, have uh, today. Uh, if, if you work in one of those museums or go to visit, or you you are a restorer, a photographer, or whatever, um, um, you have some clearance to be admitted uh, um, into those protected spaces. That was not the case there. Uh, it was a much more fluid situation, and uh, and so we have to keep that in mind. So it was much much easier to pretend that you are one of the workers, right? And um, without anybody stopping you, you didn't have any badge, right? <laughs> to, uh, to 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 swap somewhere, right? To get in, and um, or to show an ID, right? So that should be kept in mind. Also, now uh, museums move things around. That's part of, uh, of the routine of a, of a museum for whatever reason, right? Exhibitions, uh, care, um, uh, examinations, millions of different reasons. There is a very, very um, detailed um, recording of what, what goes where for how long. And that was not the case. So it's interesting that uh, um, he stole this thing early in the morning. He um, most likely uh, stayed overnight in the museum, stole it very early in the morning, uh, brought it into uh, one of those service areas uh, nearby. Um, and uh, uh, But... For numerous hours, people saw that there was an empty spot on the wall, but nobody really paid attention to it, uh, thinking that uh, the painting had disappeared because it had been brought, you know, to, to one of the labs, either for restoration or for cleaning or for photography, for you know any of those routine uh, things that happened to paintings. And uh, so it took numerous hours to actually realize that this <laughs> painting was unaccounted for. Something so, that could not happen today. No, and we read no, that no there way. was a, a plumber who also helped him open a door that was uh, closed. Yeah. This, was, this is the part that gets a little murky because uh, um, this was his story, his sort of glorious story about himself. <laughs> but the whole operation didn't really look like a one-man thing, starting with the fact that this painting, although it's not huge, still it was in a rather uh, heavy case, a wood case with then glass on, front, on top, and then it, it had around kind of imposing a, a period-like frame. So the whole thing was kind of heavy. So 
just to take it off the wall and move it. Uh, it's the kind of operation that you need more than one person. Then it needed to be disassembled, right? Uh, so um, in one of the accounts, uh, there is uh, um, the story, and again, here, it, it's hard. There, is, there are separate, different accounts, and it's hard to know exactly what happened. Um, in the initial account, uh, he said that he went out from a door, and that door, he had a key, uh, a spare key, uh, a copy had made, but that copy didn't really work properly. Properly, uh, and so it couldn't go out. But then a plumber, again, one of those servicemen who walked through those uh, service spaces, opened the door from the other side uh, in order to go to do his work. Uh, and that's how uh, mm. the chance of Perugia got out. That's the story he said the first time. But then he revised it. Uh, in, in front of the judge during the trial, um, revised it. At that point, it became much more glorious and even more, you know, um, you know, uh, almost outrageous towards you know the museum because he said, "Oh no, I just wrap it around my jacket and walked out from the main door," which is you know even more you know dramatic. I mean, uh-huh. nobody was paying attention to this. <laughs> when you see somebody going away with a painting wrapped and nobody stops it. I mean um you don't for the there's somewhere in between <laughs> right head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long catch the award-winning movie Poor Things starring Emma Stone Mark Ruffalo and Willem Dafoe check out the new documentary Freaknik The Wildest Party Never Told about the iconic Atlanta street party And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Now, after they realize the painting is missing from the museum, how does the the director of the Louvre, uh, how does he react in the moment? What are what are his next steps? Yeah, that, that, yeah. Uh, if I remember correctly, it wasn't even in Paris. Uh, if I remember correctly, um, the thing is that, that uh, uh, right after this became known and clearly it was an act uh, that made evident uh, lack of security in, in the museum. So it wasn't a great story, right? And yet, that is the story that made at the front page of uh, daily newspapers around the world. And now we are used to the fact that whatever happens to Leonardo and one of his paintings or his body or his tomb, uh, or anything that pertains to Leonardo da Vinci makes it to the front page of newspapers worldwide. But I think that was the first time that it happened. Uh, that uh, an event that pertained the work of, uh, uh, of Leonardo da Vinci uh, was uh, not just uh, local news, but uh, news that appeared uh, in every newspaper around the world. Um, then there was a frantic search, um, and um, so. Everything got activated right away. Yes, and the police are uh, are, are called uh, to start an investigation. What what is this investigation like, and 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 at what point is Vincenzo uh, even questioned? Oh, he is questioned only over. Uh, let's see, this happened in in April uh, nineteen eleven, and he was caught sometime in uh, 1913, I want to say in the fall of 1913, so it's uh, uh, over two years later. And uh, it, it is caught because, uh, uh, because I mean, he did what something that, you know, clearly, oh, the contact uh, them. At that point, he brought back, uh, he kept this uh, painting with him for many, many months in Paris. He had built then some kind of a case, um, a case, a, a trunk, really, uh, with a, a false bottom. And so uh, and under this false bottom, he had put the painting and on top of it, all sorts of things that, you know, were normal things you put in a trunk, but nothing valuable. And then he had brought the painting from Paris to Florence. In Florence, Sometime in the fall of 1913, he contacts a dealer, telling him that he has this painting and that he wants to return it to Italy and is asking for help and maybe some compensation for this act of goodwill of returning this work to Italy. This uh, art dealer, I mean, everybody knew about this painting, right? <laughs> so you get such a letter. Oh, this was happening in 1913. All this is happening through letters. <laughs> letters that go from one person to another. Also, this is very hard for us to imagine, right? <laughs> you write a letter, I have the Mona Lisa, and I want to 
I want to give it to you and, and, and to the Italian state. I mean, you know, you've stolen it. You write a letter. It writes a letter. And uh, this, uh, um, uh, this art dealer um, contacts uh, another person in Florence who was then the director of the Uffizi Gallery, uh, Giovanni Poggi, a uh, very distinguished artist historian, and uh, who also had photographs sent by the Louvre of the original painting, including details, uh, details of cracks, details of little cuts, details that would have identified the work as an original, as the original rather than a copy. Because of course there was that, that fear as well, right? What are you going to find? Are you going to find the copy? Are you going to find the original? And um, somehow these two men uh, convinced uh, uh, Vincenzo Perugia to show them the painting. And uh, this, these two men convinced, and so uh, and asked me, where do you keep it? And he said, I keep it in my hotel room in Florence. <laughs> so they all go to the hotel room in Florence. And according to the description, it's just so pulled up from under the bed with trunk starts to empty it of all the junk that was on top, and then discovers, and uh, then um, reveals the false bottom, and under this uh, uh, space is the original painting. So the two men, the director of the Uffizi and the art dealer, convince Perugia, Vincenzo Perugia, that, uh, to the fact that they had to bring it to the Uffizi for further testing. And analysis, and that's incredible. And and so this guy uh, agrees it. So the work goes to the Uppizzi, and they are they have already agreed on a price to give him back. At the time, don't worry, the painting is here, and um, the money is going to come. But we have to talk, you know, with the government. It's a lot of money, you know. We, we can't write you a check, but the money will. Um, and so <laughs> Vincenzo Perugia uh, goes back to the hotel. Um, the painting is in the city. He goes back to the hotel and waits for news about them. About <laughs> waits for news about the man, right? And next he hears, of course, is the police knocking on his door. Talk, talk. Here we are. <laughs> And he gets arrested. So he 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 made it by himself. So also this part of the story is so interesting. What was he thinking? What was right. he thinking? What what did he, was he seen as an Italian hero after the they found out that it was him who had stolen the Mona Lisa, or how was he viewed by the Italians? Luca, I. I, I um, Let's say the official part, the, the government, uh, and all the official people who dealt with uh, with this affair, well, they were in a sort of in a bind. I mean, uh, it, this is relations between two countries, and you know, they so they, they there was no way for them to buy into the uh, reasoning. Of Mr. Perugia. Right. Now, they, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. 
how um how did this very famous heist and and theft shift things in the art world um what what came about from from this you know fantastic blunder yeah i mean that i mean from for the mona lisa it became clearly that famous icon of western culture and this right after the theft that we start to have you know all the works that uh, uh, use it uh, think about you know marcel du Champ, uh, uh, but uh, lots of uh, you after the theft you find little small reproductions of the mona lisa in many cubist paintings um so it is at that moment that uh, um uh, it kind of becomes the symbol uh, of uh, of a traditional art that the avant-garde wanna 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 destroy, right? Um, it's at that moment that it becomes the most uh, important uh, uh, work, also for diplomatic reasons. Mm. So. When in we are in 1963, I'm jumping ahead, uh, but when at one point the United States and France uh, needed to reinforce their uh, their alliance and uh, and need to do that in a sort of really uh, in a way that brings the people together in, from, in, from both countries, well, they do it. Uh, the gesture that is done, the diplomatic gesture, is the landing of the Mona Lisa first to the National Gallery in Washington D.C. and then to the Mont- Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Uh, and so there is this famous photos of the Kennedys. I mean, John Kennedy and Jacqueline Kennedy, who you know was the president at the moment, and Giscard d'Estaing and his wife, the French president at the moment. Uh, both couple at the side of the Mona Lisa in the U.S. Yeah. So, so there the, the could have been millions of other works that could have, uh, have been sent as a diplomatic uh, um, um, gift, not, not even a gift, a diplomatic gesture, right? But it is the Mona Lisa that was chosen. And the same happened about 10 years later, 1974, when it was uh, uh, given for an exhibition in uh, Tokyo, Japan. So um, it then, was, yes, uh, yeah. then, hugely important. So Francesca, we ask all of our guest ex- experts this question. At the end of the day, if you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the theft of the Mona Lisa. Who or what would that be? Mm. Am I going to say it? A deranged mind. <laughs> uh, Mr. Vincenzo Perugia. His illogical thinking that he could actually get away with 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 stealing this artwork is illogical thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you so much, Francesca, for uh, speaking with us today and helping us understand this very um, uh, wild moment in art history. 
<laughs> yes. It was a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> if you'd like to hear our post-interview discussion and final verdict, head over to Patreon and subscribe. Your support is greatly appreciated. Check out our show notes for a link or head over to patreon.com slash the alarmist. And stay tuned because next week we'll be discussing the tragic life of Blanche Monnier. The Alarmist. Powered by ACAST. 